Please rise for the reading of God's word from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17 through verse 21. Hear now God's word. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed uh, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. You may be seated. Here we are again in political season. Imagine that. And it's a perpetual state, isn't it? And the, But the Bible itself is intertwined with human politics. From Old and New Testament, God is at work in and through and above and below and around kings and governors and judges and kingdoms and nations of, and the nations of the world. They come and go. He remains King of kings and Lord of lords. But in our fallen world, we are often left, uh, left with choices between less than ideal things. Many things remain unclear, while others are as clear as they can be. It's not uncommon, though, for the ill-informed and the undiscerning to be taken, taken up in the thrill of the moment or the swell of a crowd or the flash of a celebrity, promises pour forth, attractive promises at times that tempt the native, the, the naive to join the throng. But the Apostle Paul instructs us that the church has been given to us and has been given apostles and prophets, pastors and teachers, been given the Bible, prophets and apostles, pastors and teachers to take that word and proclaim it for what purpose? that we should no longer be children, that we should no longer be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. During every political season, again, which seems to be perpetual, I'm reminded of that old question, how can you tell when a politician is lying? And the answer is when his lips are moving. Well, I am not quite that cynical, but I am highly skeptical, and I'm skeptical of all parties, and they must be held to the high standard of Scripture and must be subject to the king of all kings. There's quite a bit of talk about Christian nationalism going on right now, and while I think that that can be and often is a loaded term, let me be clear about this. Jesus commissioned his disciples, that is, he commissioned us to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded. This is the nation that God placed us in to do that work and to accomplish that mission. In order for us to do that, 
we are going to have to place our hope in the right person and in the right things. And then we must actually do the things that he has commissioned us to do. So I want to talk a little bit this morning about hope, real hope and false hope. Peter has spoken to us about hope in chapter 1 of this epistle. He's told us in verse 13 that we are to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope is to be fully there. That is our certain hope. Politicians love to speak about hope. I was reminded that uh, Barack Obama closed his acceptance speech and his, with his grand oration uh, many years ago in front of the Greek columns on the night of his election with these words. At this moment, in this election, we must pledge once more to march into the future. Let us keep that promise, that American promise, and in the words of Scripture, hold firmly without wavering to the hope that we confess. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Now, if you heard those words, I hope they gave you a deep, cold shiver. My daughter, Kristen, called me right after that speech and said those words made her so angry that she cried. How dare any man attribute such words to himself and his cause? How dare he turn them into an American promise? Moreover, every, moreover, politicians of every stripe and of all kinds of things promise all kinds of things and give us a false hope. Allow me to place those misquoted, twisted words of Obama into their original context in Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 19 through 23. Here's, here's where we're to hold fast our confession and our hope without wavering. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, his body, and having a high priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, baptism, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's the hope that we hold without wavering. In other words, in the words of the old hymn, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is the context of the misquoted words of Scripture. Alluding to Scripture, Obama did in this speech, what he did was either a pandering to the ignorance and the gullibility of Christians or the arrogation of himself, but both are beyond the pale. And I suspect it was both. And so I warn you, in the name of the gospel of Christ, to be on the lookout for false political messiahs. Never trust a politician who can both twist the scriptures and sacrifice an innocent child while promising you hope for the future. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Now, what, is it, what, is this, uh, what does this have to do with our text today? I want to speak to you about false hope and real hope. Because we need, a, we need to be sure we're operating with a real hope. Where indeed have you placed your faith and your hope? This question could be answered with words, but it is answered most clearly and loudly by your life. Is your faith in the next two to four years of political promises? Perhaps you've seen through the obvious postmodern philosophy of the progressive left, but can you also see how conservatism also plays the same games? What is it conserving? It's often only tracking just behind the so-called progressives, and in both cases, we're all progressing toward the cliff. We are Christians, and our standard is the Word of God, and thus our faith and hope in progress uh, isn't in the progressives or conservatives, in the left or the right. If it's Jesus Christ in whom you have placed your trust and your faith and your hope, then it will be apparent in the way you live and the decisions you make and how you raise your children. As you think through your politics, what place does your faith and hope in Jesus Christ occupy? Or have you swallowed that old lie that your personal faith has nothing to do with your politics? As Amy Barrett uh, said as she accepted her office to the Supreme Court, her faith was not going to impact her decisions. That's horrible. And it's not true. If Jesus is your Savior, then he is also your politics because he's your king. Do you put your trust in princes? The Bible says do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man or in a human being in whom there is no help. It has always been the kingship of Jesus that has troubled the kings and political leaders of this world. Frankly, Caesar wasn't concerned about the private and personal Jesus in your heart. Jesus posed a genuine threat to his unbridled power. And Jesus still poses that same threat. Unfortunately, the church has often forgotten who sits at the right hand of, the, of, the, of, of God, the Father Almighty, and who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth right now, not someday, right now. You see, kings, presidents, senators, congressmen, and governors are not exempt from living under King Jesus. We read in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, what it says to the king. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on the scrolls, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Oh, but uh, this must be only required of the king of Israel, right? But let me hasten to remind you 
that God is the judge of all nations, and it is the same righteous standard that's found in his word that will be the standard that he uses to pass that judgment on all the nations. All men in all times and in all places are accountable to their creator and his righteous law, and they therefore should conduct themselves in fear. I've cited Psalm 2 a lot recently because the Bible, the New Testament, cites Psalm 2 a lot. It is a powerful messianic psalm, very explicit, and I'm going to read it again and just listen in light of these political matters. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Christ, the Messiah. Got the picture? The people and the kings and the rulers set themselves against the Lord. Saying, here's what they say. Let us break their bonds in pieces. That is the Lord and his anointed. And cast their cords from us. We don't want him telling us what to do. No rules for us. And then it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. By the way, history is full of kings who've done this and who have had this done to them. And where are they now? God says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill. This is a reference to Jesus, and this will be very explicit in the next verse. I will declare the decree. The Lord, that is Yahweh, has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, son, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, not you kings of Israel, but you judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Who? Jesus Christ. Again, the New Testament cites this psalm frequently, and it's clear that this is a reference to Christ. Authority to rule comes from God alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What's true for every man is likewise true for his institutions, the family, the church, and the state. And when any person or institution severs itself from God and his word, it severs itself from its true source of authority. It is cut off from the root. If we're to restore that authority to its proper place, it means that we must place ourselves, our families, our schools, our churches, our civil governments under every word of God. These ideas 
better go with you to the voting booth this Tuesday. The church is responsible for most of the government tyranny of our own day. Jesus has been reduced and limited to personal soul saving, getting me to heaven. I got my ticket punched. I can kick back now and wait. We have a Jesus to take us to heaven and a sovereign state to provide salvation at every other point. Authority, power, and lordship are necessary prerequisites to any form of salvation. We cannot save what we don't have control over. None of us can be a savior who is not also a lord. So Jesus is either the Lord and your Savior, or he is not, he's neither. Our own government and both major political parties offer rival plans of salvation. Cradle-to-grave security, the conquest of poverty, disease, death, and war, and the, all these and much more are promised by candidates who point to the messianic state as our only hope. Our government increasingly asserts the right to control every area of our lives. And if it exempts some area, it does so by its own sovereign grace so that the exempted area is merely tolerated and not truly free. The God of Scripture, the Lord and Creator, claims absolute jurisdiction over every area of life and thought. He is a jealous God, and he will not share his sovereignty Any claim of independence from his authority is revolution and sin, an act of treason. The philosopher Hegel proclaimed, The state is the march of God through the world. The state is the march of God through the world. We're here to unashamedly proclaim the crown rights of King Jesus. As our world grows independent of God, We are increasingly becoming dependents of the all-powerful state. Our Father, which art in Washington, give us our daily bread. Our sovereign Lord and our merciful Savior. But God declares himself to be the sovereign over all men and all nations. And when the state becomes our sovereign provider, it has become an idol. The crowds that accepted the loaves and fishes from Jesus were ready to receive Christ as their ruler. Our paternal state not only feeds its children, it nurtures, educates, comforts, and disciplines them. It provides all that they need for security. This transforms the state from being a gift from God, given to protect us from violence, and it turns the state into an idol. It supplies us with all blessing, and we look to it for all of our needs. And once we have sunk to this level, as C.S. Lewis points out, there is no point in telling the state officials to mind their own business. Quote, our whole lives are their business. Chesterton defined definition of a despotism is that it is a tired democracy. Consider this admonition and warning from 19th century theologian Robert L. Dabney. But when their party demands of them that they shall sustain men of corrupt private morals, 
or reckless passions because of their supposed party orthodoxy, let all Christians say, nay, verily we would fain yield all party fidelity, but we are also partisans in the commonwealth of King Jesus, and our allegiance to him transcends all others. Unless you will present us a man who to party orthodoxy unites private virtues, we cannot support him. Then would their reasonable demand be potential in every party and the abuse would be crushed. Have then as your prominent duty, if, if here then is your prominent duty, if we would save our country, that we shall carry our citizenship in the, in the kingdom of heaven everywhere and make it dominant over every public act. We must obey the law of God rather than the unrighteous behest of the party to choose out of all the people, quoting scripture here, choose out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers. Or, Dabney continues, God will assuredly avenge himself for our violated allegiance to him. He continues his warning by pointing out that when we elect bad men, we give them a hundred times more power to corrupt our children and our neighbor's children by their ungodly acts. Such men deserve obscurity, not prominence. And when you elect such men, you make their bad influence your own because he becomes your chosen agent. And be assured, a jealous God will not forget to visit the people for the guilt thus contracted. The command Peter gives is an interesting one, one that's odd to our modern ears. He says, live in fear. How out of step. How old-fashioned. Fear seems to be incompatible with hope and incompatible with faith and peace and joy. So for cultural and biblical reasons, I understand there's a resistance to preaching about the fear of God. But it's in the fear, in this fear, that the Proverbs tell us that we gain knowledge and wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Peter makes an assumption on the front side as we read in verse 17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. So the first reason for conducting ourselves in fear is that the one we call Heavenly Father judges everybody on the same, on the same kind of evidence. The standard's the same. Namely, what we do with our lives, our deeds. It says what's true in our hearts. There won't be different rules for different people. There's one thing that saves, and that's faith, and there's one standard of judgment, and that's our life. The second reason to fear God is not hoping in God, putting your trust somewhere else. When we are tempted to conduct ourselves in a way that would show that our hope is in politicians or political systems rather than God, we should be afraid. When we are tempted to act in a way that would show that our hope is in anything other than Christ, we should fear. Notice also 
Then on the other side of verse 17, Peter gives another reason for conducting ourselves in fear. He says, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Boil down fear because you have been ransomed at an infinite cost. It sounds just like Psalm 130, verse 4. There is forgiveness with you, O God, that you may be feared. Forgiveness leads to fear, respect, honor. In the same way, Peter says, there's an infinite ransom paid, the blood of Christ, to rescue you from your old way of life, so conduct yourselves accordingly. In fact, what Peter specifically stresses in verses 18 and 19 is the surpassing value and eternal durability of the ransom paid for God's people. He says, it's interesting in light of this morning's Sunday school lesson, he says that even gold and silver are perishable. They're not ultimately durable. They're not eternal. And that we might add, neither do politicians or political parties Uh, Neither are they eternal. But Peter reminds us that the blood of Jesus is precious and infinitely valuable. He stresses that the ransom paid for us is permanent. It's precious. So So when Peter says, conduct yourselves to the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold... From your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, he means fear conducting yourself uh, in a way that shows that the blood, you, you should be afraid if you're living in a way that shows that the blood isn't precious to you. It doesn't mean anything. It's incidental. So if our lives bear constant witness to the powerlessness of the blood of Jesus, then Jesus is not really where we placed our faith and our hope and our joy. And actually, we really don't belong to him. And that's a fearful prospect. So, if you're living your life in fear of what the political leaders are doing and not doing, then you have a false hope. And I've said this recently a good bit. There's so much all the time, 24-hour cable, Internet, 24-7. You can find lots of stuff to scare the hell out of you. They're not reporting on what God's doing at all. You think God's up in heaven wringing his hands? You think he's worried about all this? Psalm 2 said he's laughing. Maybe we should laugh, too. We should laugh because we know how this story ends. We laugh because if the Lord speaks, that leader's gone. God uses these situations. So stop being afraid is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, there's troubling stuff. There's wickedness. There's sin. We should know about it. We shouldn't be naive about it. We should recognize it. We should be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. We should be 
prudent in how we prepare. We should be active in what we do. But do you think you and I, think, sometimes we think, well, what difference does it make what I do? I can't change anything. You're right. How was Abraham going to become a blessing to all the nations? Abraham, Sarah, and no babies. And you're going to be a, a blessing to all the world and a great nation. How is Abraham going to do that? You know the answer because I've told you many times. God says, Abraham, you go home and you raise your family to fear me and I'll take care of the rest. How in the world, Jesus, are we going to feed this crowd of 5,000? we got a few loaves and a few fishes. we got a picnic basket to feed 5,000 people. Jesus says, you go collect that and I'll do the rest. You know what you do, what I've called you to do, and you do it faithfully and watch what I do. See, you're like leaven. And so are you, and so are you, and so are you. And I've scattered you all over this town, all over this community, in your families, in this world. And I have my people everywhere doing things every single day. They're loving, they're praying, they're preaching, they're growing. Right now. CNN's not going to report that, and neither is Fox News. Or anybody else. Not really. If you're living your life in fear of what the political leaders are doing or not doing, then you're afraid of the wrong things. Do not fear, Jesus said, those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 1 Peter 2, excuse me, 1, 20 through 21, Jesus We're told he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's where we stand. Let's pray. Our Lord God, Almighty King, men exalt themselves in your presence and boast of what they shall do. Shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood, but the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought out... He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. That from Psalm 94 and from Isaiah 40. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the smallest dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. O Lord, we pray again with King David. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach us your statutes. We are your servants. Give us understanding that we may know your testimonies. It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Therefore, we love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things we consider to be right. We hate every false way. Thank you, Lord, for a certain hope.
that is built on the blood of Jesus, our risen King. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. False things in this world. There are false prophets, false messiahs, false promises, false hopes. Jesus explained it this way in John chapter 8, verses 42 through 47. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I ask the question, has the thrill and hope of the kingship of Jesus ever captured your heart and your mind? Some of us really believe that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and that he shall reign forever and ever. Peter opened his letter with these words, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by his power, by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We eat now to celebrate that victory. And that is a political victory in which we have placed our faith and our hope. Amen. Father, grant us your patience, your long-suffering, to see the world and ourselves in the light of your perfect timing and to entrust ourselves to you regardless of the immediate circumstances. Go with us now into this new week. May we walk with you and not with the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scornful. Give us the thousand-year view. Give us the thousand-generation view. Bless now this Lord's Day, our rest and our feasting, and our rejoicing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Amen.